sports are really important vehicles for relationships. We have purpose. We have a why. We bring people together. We connect. I feel like God is our greatest supporter and our greatest coach. Welcome to Rabbi on the Sidelines. I'm Rabbi Erez Sherman from Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. This week we are joined by a true legend in the sports broadcasting field, in the faith field, a true mensch, as we like to say, just a wonderful person. Seven-time Emmy Award winner from Inside the NBA on TNT, Major League Baseball on TBS, author of an amazing book right here, Unscripted, The Journey of Faith and Sports, and Ernie Johnson. Ernie, it's so great to have you on Rabbi on the Sideline. Thanks for joining. Harris, thank you so much, man. I've been looking forward to this so much. I can't wait to get going. Well, I want to actually begin last March because that's when I reached out to you because I realized this faith journey and the sports journey connected. Last March on the set of March Madness with Barkley and Shaq and Andy Katz, VCU was eliminated from the NCAA tournament, not because of basketball, but because of COVID. And I remember everybody was complaining that, oh my gosh, you kids are not going to have this chance to play basketball tomorrow. But then you said, you know, guys, it's just a basketball game. Because tonight I'm going to go home to my son Michael on a ventilator. And I'm going to give him a kiss and realize that he's with me for one more day. And when I saw that, I realized this is way beyond a game. And I reached out to you on my own personal narrative of having a brother with the quadriplegic of blessed memory. And I said, I need to talk to this man, of course, about sports, but about faith. Why at that moment did he decide to bring that story to the world of March Madness during COVID, realizing that this was an important story to tell? I think because um, it's important for us all to realize that we're kind of, uh, in my line of work, we're in the fun and games department. You know, I, <laughs> I, I began my career as a news guy. You know, I was in the local newsroom, and and there you're dealing with uh, things every day that are oftentimes, uh, you know, a life and death situation. And then um, I was fortuitously. Uh, switched from the news department to the sports department by a new news director there at WSB in Atlanta way back in the day. And, um, yeah, it was like being transferred to Toys R Us. You know, it was, that was, that's where you're just talking about games and, and, uh, and for the most part, it's, it's all, you know, pretty light. You know, there, there are certainly times where stories come in that, uh, that require a lot more depth and a lot more feeling than that. But, um, I think it was just at that time that, um, you know, the whole country, the whole world is going through something that we hadn't gone through before. And um, I don't know, that just comes out sometimes. It's just, you know, the, the, the things that really matter, um, you can't just put them aside because you're doing a job as a sportscaster. And so mm-hmm. that's where that came from. And, and it's, you know, if, if my dad taught me anything, uh, from his years as a broadcaster, the most basic thing he ever told me was be yourself. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that was a, a be yourself moment that that's, that's how it hit me. And, and um, I don't think we can be afraid to to go there in the midst of uh, wondering how many, you know, points and rebounds per game somebody has, or how many times a team turned it over or anything like that. But yeah, it was a tough time for the VCU team, obviously. Right. Um, but it was, um, um, in the grander scope, uh, as we all dealt with this pandemic and continue to, it was just something I felt uh, needed to be said. 
So let's start with the toys department, and that's basketball, it's baseball, it's golf, right? Yeah. Um, there's the wins and the losses, obviously, an amazing uh, all-star weekend. Uh, we'll talk a little later about the 75 uh, greatest uh, athletes. Maybe we'll talk about the 75 greatest athletes of faith. Um, but what do we get out of sports, especially in today, right? What does it mean to us as a country? Because, you know, we're, you are often the last voice that we hear before we go to sleep. Well, right? I apologize for that, too. Sorry. <laughs> no, um, it's a blessing. But what, uh, what is the greater what? meaning of sports? Yeah, I, I just I've always referred to it as as a, just a pleasant distraction. Uh, there's enough going on in the world that we um, um, you you just need a break, um, and I think that's what we try to provide, especially on inside the NBA. You know, where I'm working with Shaq and Kenny and Chuck, um, that if you've had a rough day, maybe you just need a few minutes where you're going to laugh and watch a couple of knuckleheads clown on each other. You know, and and so. Uh, I don't, I don't put it on any kind of a pedestal as, oh, that we're doing the most important thing in the world. We're not. We're just, we're just four guys sitting around talking about basketball. And, and oftentimes when that strays from basketball, that's where the hilarity ensues. And so um, I just think we're just, we're, we're, we are a distraction. Um, and, and sports uh, on its own, I think, provides a lot of valuable life lessons, um, no matter how old you are. Um, you know, things about loyalty and perseverance and, um, you know, overcoming obstacles and that kind of thing. So sports has those messages. But I also just think that, you know, when we do our show, it's, um, hey, take a break from whatever's, you know, bugging you or dragging you down. And mm -hmm. maybe we can give you a little bit of relief here for a few hours when we uh, when we show you a double header. So you actually talk about often that there is, it's all improvisation. Obviously you have material. You say that you have more material than we can ever imagine, but just take us maybe just a few moments about, you know, on the set, it's about the game. It's about just four guys, you know, hanging out in the man cave. Uh, but what, <laughs> what do you try to get across to the audience, whether it's through a game or through conversation? You know, I think um, number one, you, you know, your role on a show. And so I'm sitting here with three guys who have done just about, everything conceivable in fact they have in a basketball game so if if you want insight into into you know what a team is talking about with 1.6 seconds to go in the game down by one uh these guys know what that is uh, my role on that is to you know is to get everybody their touches make sure you, you hear from everybody and um and preparation for me is is what it's all about i mean i um I keep a daily log of every game played in the NBA. I, I keep wow. a bunch of my own stats to go along with what uh, Joe Underhill, underdog as we call him, uh, provides me from his research post. Um, and I'm reading articles and reading quotes and say, and, and just kind of in my mind saying, boy, if I throw this out there, I know how Chuck's going to react to it. And then, I'm, then Shaq will probably do this. So I'm just kind of looking for fodder that's going to uh, further the conversation or spark discussion. Um, and so that's, um, I think that's kind of how I approach it. And then most of the stuff that happens that maybe people are talking about the next day or blowing Twitter up about is really organic. Uh -huh. I mean, it, it, I mean, there have been times, you know, Shaq once we, you know, I, I referred a few seasons ago to a game that was going on in Oakland between Golden State and somebody and then, and, and we're live on the air and Shaq says, why do you keep saying Oakland? I said, because that's where they're playing the game. And he said, I didn't know that. I thought they always played in San Francisco. 
<laughs> and, and we're like, you played in the in the league for 15 years. What? And you didn't. He said, no, we just I go to the hotel, get on the bus. And I thought we were playing in San Francisco. <laughs> so you can't you can't draw that up in a production meeting. That's right. just stuff that happens. And so I, I think that's the beauty of the show. We don't rehearse anything. The guys don't know what's coming next. They don't know what I'm going to ask them. And it's not like we sit down in a commercial break and I, and I say, hey, uh, Michael Malone of the Nuggets had this to say, so have something ready. I don't. We don't do that. We mm-hmm. want to get gut level reactions, and um, and we just wing it. I mean, we let it fly. It, you know, it's four guys sitting around watching a basketball game, and so if you over rehearse something like that, it comes off as over rehearsed. Absolutely. And and, and then it, it would eliminate some of those uh, organic moments that uh, that we enjoy so much. Well, in my business, I call it sacred improvisation. Actually, yeah. it's, it's it's very it's very similar in terms sure. of right, the the congregation, the sermonic material. You said the preparation is crucial, but the um, execution is as important in terms of what the feel of the community actually is. Oh, exactly. I, I know exactly where you're coming from. So at the same time, you do have some serious moments that you bring to the broadcast booth or the the table. I want to play this in 2016, where. Um, in our business, politics and religion, we, we keep apart. And politics and basketball is often kept apart as well. This is a clip that uh, was played, and we'll just hear this, and we'll have to hear your comments about this. I know you're not supposed to talk about politics and religion, but we're already talking about politics, and so I'm going to go the R direction, too. I never know from one election to the next who's going to be in the Oval Office, but I always know who's on the throne. And I'm on this earth because God created me. So you went the R route. Maybe you can yeah. talk about the R route. And uh, again, you, you brought it there. And uh, tell us, what, what were you thinking in that moment if it was not rehearsed? And why was it important to bring it then? Well, you know what? It was, um, we have been unafraid to go off the grid uh, for a sports show uh, in terms of talking about social <coughs> issues. And, and I think a lot of that uh, comes from uh, when Charles came on board, because Charles has always been outspoken about everything and has never been shy about sharing his opinions. And so when we do that, um, you know, we knew going in that, you know, in a 10-minute pregame show, we're all going to have like two minutes uh, to talk about the election. And um, and so all I could do, again, is be myself. And um, I wasn't going to use that two minutes to say, wow, can you believe what happened? Wow, what a surprise. Or, you know you know, something really vanilla, I was going to go where I was going to go. Cause I heard a lot of people talking, you know, and, and, and were concerned and, and were mad or they were happy or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I said, here's how I've processed, here's how I process the election. And, uh, I went farther than just go to the R word. I talked about the fact that, Hey, uh, I follow this guy named Jesus. You might've heard of him, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so, the whole the whole thing was just uh, me being me and me being honest with with the viewers and whether or not I'm not trying to say you need to agree with me or anything like that. I'm just saying this is how I'm processing it, that, uh, that look, I didn't vote for this guy. Um, but I also realized that the ultimate power does not reside in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was really at, at the heart of, of what I wanted to say. And and what was crazy eras is that i mean 
by the time I got back to my office, you know, I just looked at my Twitter feed and it was <laughs> it was exploding. Um, and and it was overwhelmingly positive. In fact, our social media folks came downstairs and said, man, people are are loving this thing. And certainly there there were there were detractors and people who told me I was out of my mind. And that happens no matter what you do on, you know, right. on social media. Um, but it was a couple of mornings later that my wife and I were sitting at the uh, kitchen table, just having a cup of coffee. She had her, uh, um, she had her computer open, was looking at Facebook. And she <laughs> says, geez, so that you're, you know, what you said on Thursday night has got 15 million views. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. But I don't know. I think part of that was, I think people were doing just what I was doing. They were trying to process this whole thing because it was, you know, this was an unprecedented kind of an election. And so uh, maybe some of the things I had to say were just what people needed to hear. I don't know. I, but I, I can only assume that. But uh, mm -hmm. no, it was a, that was a powerful moment. It certainly, it's, <laughs> and I didn't go out there saying, you know what, I'm, I've got two minutes. I'm going to see if I can break the internet with it. It was right, just, right. it was, hey, be yourself and see what happens. So we're going to talk about two words, the F word and the G word. That's faith and that's God. And that's because this is really the topic of this book here, Unscripted by Ernie Johnson Jr. And as much as I like the title, I love the subtitle, The Unpredictable Moments That Make Life Extraordinary. We have a common scriptural verse that we say from the Psalms. In Hebrew, I'll say it. Zehayom Asadonai. This is the day that God made. Let us rejoice in it. And that is the verse that I took out of your book. And it's really because of your journey. So let's start with that faith journey. I know uh, Pastor Myers has been, I would love to meet Pastor Myers one day. Maybe we'll uh, connect uh, shortly. Um, but he brought you to faith. But I love the story that I heard recently that you went to that church because when you brought your family, specifically your son, Michael, with muscular dystrophy, there was a place for him to be while the whole family worshiped. Can you take us to your first entry into Pastor Meyer's church? And then you also said something about sort of being Moses in the desert. You said it took 40 years to wander to the promised land, and maybe it took you 40 years to get to that moment as well. So take us through the wilderness and how we got to the promised land. Yeah, I mean, and the more I would tell my story and listen to uh, uh, to folks at the at the church which was called crossroads at the time it, it, my story and theirs were almost mirror images a lot i mean i grew up in a i grew up um, going to catholic school and you know you you're taught certain things as you as you grow up and you go to church on sunday because you got to go to church on sunday and then you know and you're looking at your watch and saying when's this going to be over and that kind of thing so i I mean, I was certainly exposed to um, to faith from from day one, um, but I, you know, I went away to school at the University of Georgia, and I kind of got away from having to get up on Sunday mornings. And I, and honestly, you know, Sunday mornings to me were a great way to sleep off Saturday night. And so um, I was, um, uh, you know, I just kind of said, okay, I'm. I'm doing fine. And then, and, and the thing that's, that kind of misleads you and, the, and, and it is the fool's gold there is that as I graduate from college and I land my first TV job in Macon, Georgia, and, 
then on, then on to Spartanburg, South Carolina, and then eventually to Atlanta, which is a top 10 market as a news reporter. My feeling that whole time is, hey, I, I'm doing great, and God hadn't had a thing to do with it. You know, so, you know, that's where I was. Um, and then Cheryl and I, you know, we had two kids biologically. Uh, she went to Romania and adopted Michael in 91. We adopted a little girl from Paraguay in 1993. Um, so, you know, we've got um, two boys and two girls. Great job. Great spouse. Life's great. And and then there just came a time, uh, eras where um, in 1997 or so, I'm just like, is this it? You know, is this is this why I'm here? Is this my purpose? I'm, mm-hmm. You know, is this where the joy in my life is going to come from is from doing this work and and and. Um, so we decided to kind of explore and, and the kids, you know, the kids would be yeah. playing with in the neighborhood and they, and the kids would be talking about, Hey, they, they went to, to, uh, you know, their Bible school and they went to their Wednesday night service and they're talking about these characters out of the Bible and my kids don't have a clue who they are. And then, you know, they're, and they're saying, Hey, how come we don't go to church? And so mm-hmm. Cheryl and I were like, okay, look, we're going to try to give the, these guys some spiritual uh, foundation. Mm-hmm. And so I looked around. I was out on a on a Sunday drive, just kind of checking out a, a few churches that I had seen. And I stopped by this non-denominational. And to me, that was that was a what do you mean non non-denominational? Uh, OK, so I checked this place out and and it looked like, hey, this is this might be doable. And, and, and this is when we find out that, yeah, they have a special needs, a person who takes care of special needs kids wow. because, you know, Michael's. You know, it's hard for him to get around and 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 he needs attention. Um, and so um, we said, we'll we'll try it out. And the, and the funny thing is, is, you know, we go there to give the kids some spiritual grounding. Right. And that first Sunday I'm in there, Kevin Myers is is preaching and he's just got this wonderful way. I mean, and he's just a guy like me. You know, he's married, he's got a few kids, and he's about my age and knows the Bible back and forth. But he made it so relevant. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting here just being pierced where I'm sitting because he's talking about, you know, who's the provider in your life? And yes. Are you yes. pursuing wholeness or happiness? And I'm like, Love well, that. I'm the provider and I'm looking for happiness. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, you missed those first two. And so I just dug deeper into that and then. And then a few months later, I just, you know, the, the church was pretty small at that time. You could talk to Kevin after after every service. And, <laughs> and I was like, God's messing with me, man. What am I what am I doing? And uh, he said, well, let's sit down and talk. We went for we went for lunch at a place called O'Charlie's. And I and I had uh, this southern fried chicken salad with honey mustard on the side and a sweet tea. And, and at the same at that same lunch, we just kind of joined hands and I and I prayed um, to accept Jesus Christ into my life. And, and it changed everything for me and it gave me a purpose and it, and it allowed me to see that, that even in those years when I wasn't paying a bit of attention to God, he, uh, he had his eye on me. Yes. I love that. When you were, when we weren't paying attention to God, God was paying attention to us and you write in your book, trust in God, period, yeah. trust in God, period. 
and you have a clip that I'm not going to show right now, but in telling Michael's story, I believe it was to the employees of Turner that you talk about the woman at the Romanian orphanage that basically says, don't take this one. Don't take yeah. this one. And yeah. Cheryl actually calls and says, we're taking Michael. And you provide, as you said, are you the provider? Are you finding happiness or wholeness? Um, in the life and the years that Michael was given to you on this earth, um, how did you find that wholeness in his life that was often physically broken? Yeah, I mean, you know, you go back to that day um, in the orphanage, because I'm at home, I'm in Atlanta, and I've got Eric and Maggie um, at that point, our two, our two kids, and, you know, and we're going totally unscripted at this point. You know, we're saying, you know, if you stick to the script, it's like, hey, mom and dad, a boy and a girl, Mm-hmm. Don't mess with it. And this is what every, you know, this is what folks want. Um, but Cheryl had been so drawn to the plight of these Romanian orphans by watching an ABC News 2020 that, um, you know, we decided, yeah, let's add to the family and let's give a kid another shot. And she wow. went over there with no idea if she would come back with a child or anything like that. I mean, it, it was a, the situation was, was very unsettled there. But it was, you know, that that's exactly what happened. I mean, she, the first orphanage she goes to, they bring this little kid out who's nearly three years old and can't walk or talk and has a foot that's totally turned in. He just he, he makes noises. And 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 yeah, the, the, the nurse who handed Michael to Cheryl Ann said, don't don't take this boy. He's no good. And um, and yeah, I mean, in that phone call, when she called, she said, hey, we need to talk you know, about this boy and about whether we're willing to do this. She said, I just can't go the rest of my life wondering what happened to this little blonde haired boy. And I said, bring him home. And I think uh, it's, again, that's one of those things where look at that point, this was 1991. This is six years before I had that lunch (coughs) with Kevin Myers, you know, and so people have this impression sometimes that, oh, you guys have been these Christians for all your lives. And, right. and that's what let you know. I said, no, we we weren't labeled. We were, you know, we were just kind of floating out there at this time. We just knew this was the thing to do. And that's what points out to me, I think, that sometimes that's divine. That's those, those are the divine moments where where God's like, I got to I'm going to put Cheryl in Romania and I'm going to put her at this orphanage and she's going to meet this kid and and it's it's tough for us to comprehend that mm-hmm. kind of a thing and that kind of a connecting of the dots mm-hmm. but that's what we wanted to do and 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 i think that's part of the thing that that in 1997 reminded me that he was looking at me when we weren't looking at him and mm-hmm. and and this is um the thing about raising a special needs child like Michael, um, who was not, he wasn't supposed to get out of his teens when he's got, you got muscular dystrophy and many, many families out there know that that's, um, you know, look, there's no cure. And Mm -hmm. so you don't know how long you're going to have him. You know, somehow he lived 33 years, you know, 30 of the last 30 of them with us. But what he, what his presence did, and, and where the wholeness comes in, too, is that when Cheryl and I woke up in the morning, we were immediately put into a servant mentality. Mm. Michael needed everything done for him, especially especially the last 15 years of his life. 
when he couldn't, when he could, it was very tough for him to move. So anything he needed in the morning, I mean, you, you take him to the bathroom, you, you give him a, a shower, you do all those things. Uh, and one of the most, it's going to seem really insignificant to you, but just the mere act of scratching him somewhere because he's got an itch. Think of how many times during the day we do that. We just don't even, we unconsciously do it. You know, something itches, you go like that. He couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was everything, man. It was everything he needed. And so I think that just responding to that need for us to serve mm-hmm. um, is huge. Um, because it takes your, it, we get so tied up in, in our own agendas all the time. And it was a perfect way for us to say, our agendas can wait. And, and I think that's a, that was a life lesson for us. So I relate on so many, many different levels. Many of my audience watching knows my own personal narrative of my brother Ayal of blessed memory, quadriplegic for 32 of his 36 years. Mm. I relate to actually many of your children who are siblings of a special needs individual watching my mom and my dad be those caretakers, be those servants, but also knowing how much was given back to our family knowing that even five years later after his passing, uh, the impact that he continues to have, the fact that I reached out to you because of my brother, because of Michael, I see that that connection is what I really, the blessings that we try to continue to bring as well. And you mentioned, uh, or I'm going to mention Psalm 23, which actually in the Jewish tradition, we say at the house of mourning. But you mentioned in something that I heard that you talk about we have to be grateful. If we're going to be grateful for the mountaintops, we also have to be grateful for the valleys. And when I heard that, I immediately went to Psalm 23. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. You are my rod and my staff and you comfort me. I don't know if that Psalm was the impetus of you saying that, but maybe you can say just a few things about you've reached the mountaintops. You are every kid who sits in this chair who becomes a bar mitzvah. When I ask them what they want to be, they either want to be Shaquille O'Neal or Ernie Johnson, <laughs> right? I'm sitting in this chair saying, great, you could be the next Ernie Johnson. That's the mountaintop. But how do you deal with the valley? And how do you balance those two as well? Yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's a really heavy, that's a really <coughs> heavy question. And, and I think only when you go through both, do you have some kind of a comprehension of it. And um, so look, dealing with Michael, was one thing he he brought us such an incredible amount of joy because of his um, some of the limitations he had uh, you know uh, in terms of developmental delays and that kind of thing in addition to the muscular dystrophy but you know his his whole thing he had this this kind of a rain man like uh, memory of cars, cars he could right. tell you what you he could tell you you tell him what you drive he'll never forget it you could see him 10 years later and he'd tell you what you drove but he also said love you too uh, yes and i think that's because he he was being raised in a household our household where that was said all the time mm-hmm. you know you couldn't you couldn't get away without hearing hey love you too all but he kind of adopted that as, as his favorite thing to do and like in a time of silence around the house he would just see and say daddy love you too and 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 it was he was so excited with 
just the smallest bit of kindness you would show. You know, you could make his day by just laminating pictures of cars that he could look at while sitting in his wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Um, or just making him a playlist so he could listen to the music he likes in his headphones. Um, and I think he taught us that too, to be, to be satisfied with what you have and not always say, Hey, what's the next thing I need or this will make me happy. Um, and I think, I think that was, that was a great lesson. It is his simplicity, Mm -hmm. um, and his sweetness of spirit, um, were contagious and, and rubbed off on us. And, And what we would do is, uh, you know, it was, people would say, oh, what you've done for him. And I said, no, 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 it's what he's done for us. Yes, yes, uh, yes, and, yes, yes. And, and that's, and that's huge. And so, um, you know, when you talk about the valleys and the mountaintops and, you know, you can have professional success and, and then you can also have a doctor look across the table at you and say, you got cancer. Mm-hmm. And so, I've been through that twice. Yeah. Had a doctor look me in the eye and tell me twice. And, um, and so I think I've, in following with scripture, I've just, I have been able to be content in every circumstance. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to let that steal my joy. And, um, and I realized through all of those trials, through the mountaintops, through the valleys, especially that, um, I'm being formed into the man I'm supposed to be, yeah, you know, and, and, and so get me straight here. I, from my standpoint, sure. Um, you don't want to be diagnosed with cancer. You don't want a child to be diagnosed with muscular dystrophy, but at the same time, those experiences have been, have, have made me, um, the man I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so if you say, hey, could you take those away? I don't know that I could. Right. Cause I don't, I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know if I, I don't want to picture who I would be if everything went according to the way I wanted it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and so we accept those things uh, as part of our lives. And, 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 and God never promised that I will, you know, Hey, if you trust me and, and if, and if you'll make a commitment to me, you'll never have a problem in your life. Mm -hmm. But he Mm -hmm. said, but he did promise that during those times he'd walk, he'd walk it with me. And I'm finding that out right now. I mean, there is, you know, I'm about three and a half months since we lost Michael. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that walk um, is easier than some days than it is others. Cause some days I'm really limping. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's with me and he's walking me through it on, on our whole family. Absolutely. I want to go back to what you said about love you too. Cause that really just struck me. I know you gave an impassioned speech to Alabama uh, with uh, Nick Saban. I love the line that you said when Nick Saban calls, it's not, Yes or no? It's what time will I be there? Yeah, exactly. That speech was also given to the Turner employees. And I just want to share a little clip about Michael and the basketball team. Again, uh, we're just getting to know each other. But actually, when I was in high school and my brother was in a wheelchair and he wasn't on my varsity basketball team, but he never missed a game. 
And there was one game where we have a very small gym in Syracuse, New York. And literally with his electric wheelchair, I don't know why he did this, but drove on the court and it stopped the fast break and we won the game. I'll <laughs> never forget that miracle that happened. When you said God provides miracles, it happens on the court too. But this is uh, Michael um, and I love you too and what it means in terms of finding value in everybody. And he gets out there and they give him his blanket and stuff. <laughs> And the crowd cheers, and I look up in the student section, and they're standing like this. Don't take, boys, no good. He had done more through that point in his life and impacted more folks than I could ever hope to. Because there is value inside everybody. may not be able to do things the way we all do it may have a different strength and different weakness and that kind of thing but there's always value find it find it in those you work with don't stress out over the things that bug you find that value and latch on to it so take us back to the five-foot impact player on that basketball team and uh, why the coach brought him onto the team to find value in everybody. In a world today where we have very, very difficult time finding value in anybody, you say find value in everybody. Well, I think it was, uh, you know, when Michael was in high school, he's, he went to this brand new school that turned into this huge, you know, it's one of those high schools that could, that could double as a, as a small college, you know, thousands of kids there. And, and the, the basketball coach they hired there at Mill Creek high school um, left his job in Indiana to take this job in Brazelton, Georgia. And, um, and he was a really good coach Um, and basketball, you know, in Indiana, basketball is king you know so he's gonna Mm -hmm. he's gonna leave basketball country and come down to football country down here in georgia where (laughs) you know football on saturday is religion yeah and and he's gonna be the basketball coach and um and so he he was just in the hallways of the school one day and heard this wheelchair and followed it into the special needs classroom and that's where he you know and he's the most this guy, Phil Bolier, is just uh, engaging and has this just magnetic personality. So he just pokes his head in there to see who this guy was. And he meets Michael and Michael quizzes him about what kind of car he drives. Obviously, <laughs> that's always the first question. And then, you know, Phil's like, hey, good to meet you. And he turns to leave and and Michael hits him with his love you too, coach. Mm-hmm. And that kind of stopped Phil in his tracks. And the next thing I know, I've got a letter in Michael's backpack when he gets off the bus saying, my name is Phil Bolier. I'm the head basketball coach and I need your son on my team. And, and we met over at the high school and I'm, I'm okay. I said, tell me what's up. What are you thinking? I said, have you noticed that, you know, this isn't decoration. He's got to, he needs that wheelchair to get around. So I don't know how much he's going to help your team. Um, he says, no, he's going to be my five foot tall impact player with no vertical leap. Yes. He says, because he says, uh, he says, cause I think he's got a wonderful heart and, and, um, and I want him to teach my team maximum effort. Cause everything it, it, it took at that point took him everything he 
he had strength wise just to drive his chair. And, and he said, and that love you too thing, he says, he has a great heart for others. So that's what I wanted to teach my team. So Cheryl and I were like, yeah, we're in, that's great. And so he, he would, you know, he would sit behind the bench, did that for three seasons. Um, and Michael doesn't know if the ball's blowing up or stuffed. He couldn't care less, you know, who, you know, who wins the game or any of that stuff. He just loved hanging around with the guys mm-hmm. and, and, and he could tell them, he could tell them every car that they drove and he could, and he, you know, one of the funniest things is that they'd go around the room in the locker room talking about what they drive. And, and he would ask, he asked a player who was in ninth grade, he said, what do you drive? And he <laughs> said, I, I don't drive. I take the bus. And Michael started laughing. You know, it was like, and then the whole team just, you know, piled on this kid because, because he cracked Michael up. But, um, you know, Phil was, Phil was t- talking about um, Michael's impact while he was teaching class. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he'd tell, he'd tell, you know, he'd stop in the middle of a history class and say, I got to tell you a story about this guy, Michael Johnson. And he would tell Michael's story from Romania. And he, and he's the way he put it, he said, Hey, we got a lot of sign language going on in this high school in the hallways. He said, and most of it involves one finger, you know, yeah. and the kids were all like, yeah, that's true. And he said, well, instead of that, try this. He yes. says, anybody know what that is? And, you know, get funny looks. And he said, that's, it's, I love you too. It's just, it's, you know, it's, I love you. It's, I love you. And if you poke your index finger, tilt the index finger at somebody, it's, I love you too. And so he was teaching that while he was teaching class. And that's what led to the student section standing up like this on senior night. And that just brought me to my knees, man. And it was like, and that's another one of those, look, only God, mm-hmm. only God takes a basketball coach from Indiana, sticks yes. him in a little old Brazelton, Georgia, and hooks him up with some Romanian orphan and then teaches the school this. So, um, yeah, it's it was an amazing time in Michael's life. And we were, we were, we were forever grateful. They they, they have a uh, they they have an award called the Michael Johnson Heart for Others Award that still is handed out at the end of every basketball season. And. A couple of years ago, I had Michael out at fast food place, just grabbing a little something. And um, and at that point, Michael couldn't chew or anything like that. He would just you would dip a French fry in sauce and let him taste the uh, taste the sauce. And it was he loved doing that. And and so we're doing that one day and, the, and a kid working at this place comes walking up and said, you know, and it wasn't like. I get it a lot. You know, kids come up and say, hey, are you the guy on TNT? Or, hey, you're the guy on, on uh, the 2K video game. No, this guy came up and said, is that Michael Johnson? I said, yeah, it is. He said, I won his award last year at Mill Creek. Wow. Jeez. And I was like, wow. I said, well, this is the guy. This is the guy. So, um, make you know, make him proud. Mm-hmm. And um, that was just a cool, cool moment that's amazing so on nba and tnt we talked about politics just for a moment and how you you being you um we talked obviously about the special needs world the inclusion world as well just a couple of weeks ago on international holocaust remembrance day you did something that was spectacular um over these past few weeks there was some controversy in terms of actually the book mouse uh being uh, in, in tennessee being taken off a book list um, because it was too controversial to teach Holocaust to children. 
And you, during halftime of an NBA game, as you just said, sports should be a distraction to the people. You brought up International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And in fact, you brought a guest and a friend of mine, Dan Grunfeld, um, and his book, By the Grace of the Game. And you told that story. And I want to just share, uh, after you told the story of Dan Grunfeld, Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal said something unbelievable. And I want to um, do this clip that uh, we're going to share right now. I want people to understand to see this, and then maybe you can give us a little commentary on the commentary. So we're going to play that clip right now. It's something that every kid should learn about. Uh, you know, obviously, I've learned a lot about it over my years, but every kid should learn about it. I mean, there's some crazy people out there who said it doesn't exist. They're just crazy. But I think all young kids should learn about that, uh, in my opinion. Growing up in West Germany, we took a trip to a place called Dachau. Mm -hmm. And that's where I first learned about the Holocaust. And they still have, you know, items, the ovens and, you know, the barracks and the places where they held the Jewish people. And I was really saddened by it. So, you know, to all my Jewish friends, Shalom, Barak Hashem, Tova. The most I have learned about the Holocaust was a book that, uh, in fact, I just read it. Four months ago, uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I would recommend it highly to anybody who wants an insight into what that was like, written by a survivor, a doctor, uh, and just the atrocities and the horror that the, the, the people went through. And then the struggle once, once you are freed, uh, entering back into society with some freedom when there was a time when you had no hope. It's a, it's a fascinating fascinating read uh but again to, to so we're gonna stop that clip for a moment and like that's unreal in the middle of a game you bring up the holocaust it's obviously holocaust memorial day obviously dan grunfeld son of the great ernie grunfeld who was the only um the only sur child of holocaust survivors to play in the nba and then shaquille o'neal starts saying that he, in high school he's living in germany and going to dachau one of the concentration camps um, what was the preparation, I guess, to get to there? And perhaps what impact were you trying to have on the public watching that day? Well, we had actually, we had run a piece just prior to that conversation. Uh, and I got to credit Adam Lefko, who's our host mm -hmm. on, yes. uh, on Tuesday nights. And Adam is just, they don't get any better. He's, he's an extremely talented broadcaster, but just a good man. And, and he and Dan had, had, um, sat down and talked about the book. And so we had this, this piece ran um, on the, the Holocaust Remembrance Day. And, and so this piece ran and talked about the book. And then our discussion came out of that. And so um, that, was a, that was the opportunity just to, to point that out and say, hey, this is, this is great work by Dan, great work by Adam. Um, and what meaning it had for us. And, um, and again, that's, that's our show. I mean, that's, mm. you know, we don't have to stick to, did the Clippers beat the Bucks? You know, it's like, this is, this is important. This is vital. Um, and it, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, it's tough for me to say, look, it took me that long before I read the book, before I read Victor Frankel's book. You yeah, know, what was the inspiration to read that book for us? You know, you know what we were. I've got some close neighbors um, who live near us over here at uh, in Brazelton, 
and we were all together by the fireplace one night, just kind of sitting around talking. Um, and somehow that book came up wow. and, and my buddy who's a little older than I am and has been a coach at the, the college level and in the NFL for years and years, his name is Rip Shearer. He's an awesome dude. And, and so Rip says, Oh no, I mean, man, you've got to read man's search for meaning. Victor Frank, you've got, he said, I read it, you know, when I, back when I was a teenager and I'm like, okay, I need to do this. And so I did, I got a hold of the book and, um, and it's, it's, it's just so rich and it's, and, and taught me so much. I mean, I, there were things, I mean, I did, I, I thought I knew what was going on there. And then I, and then when you hear his stories of how, um, some of his friends actually were recruited as being part of their captors, you know, that they would, that it was commonplace for men who knew each other, one to be beating the other, Mm -hmm. your friend. And it was, it was, it, it, it was mind blowing to me, but then the way he unpacked how this hopelessness was just, you know, at, at a certain point, the hopelessness was just, that's all there was. And and where he found that unless you had something else to latch onto, mm-hmm. that's the only way you were able to stay away from that hopelessness. And then to, and then as he talks about the day they're freed and then coming to grips with that, um, oh no, it was, it was awesome. It, it, it was an awesome read and just uh, just as profound as it gets. Actually, there's the whole day of freedom and liberation. And you said captiveness. I mean, it goes into everything they were speaking about. It goes into faith. It goes into how we can be free. Actually, every single morning in our prayer book, we say in Hebrew, a blessing, thanking God, my tear asurim, for freeing the captive. And it doesn't mean the person behind bars. It right. means our soul who is entering the world right now and through the way that you lived your life in the way that you, uh, when you said that God put Michael, you know, into those situations or that basketball coach from Indiana to Georgia, I would say that God has put you in these positions. And you often speak about that as well, that like, did God put me in this broadcast position to do a halftime show? Or did he put me in this position for when those, where there are times that we can access faith. And I remember you also said, I've done a lot of awesome research on your faith is um, you said, you know, we don't push it in people's faces, Right. We start with that relationship. It becomes a sacred relationship. And then you realize there is those moments when God can easily be brought into our lives. Um, and I think that's an important piece of uh, what you have done um, as well. I want to ask two more questions. One actually is from somebody watching. Uh, it's a little off topic, but it deals with, I think, maybe uh, your expertise on that the NBA. And this, I think faith and race also have a lot to do with each other in terms of uh as your shirt says, be a better human being. Um, I think that's exactly yeah, what we Be a better human. Exactly, right? And one of those is by bridging differences through sports. Uh, somebody is asking, in the NBA, there's been success in minority coaching um, hires, but like in the NFL, it's a little more difficult. Maybe just your, your take on that if you have a few seconds to do that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's an issue without question. I know I think the NBA has done an, an outstanding job with it. I mean, you, you're talking about um, – a league that you know is predominantly black and and now and black head coaches are represented um around the league uh the nfl has been a different story obviously and and i think you know you've seen a lawsuit filed and 
And, um, and I would hope, it, look, my hope is that the NFL would make this more than just lip service to a, to an issue. And so, yeah, we're going to do better. Well, you got to, you can't just say you're going to do better. You must do better. And so that's it basically. I mean, you've heard, you've heard, um, people talking about this for weeks and weeks. And I really, I I have nothing really to add to that aside from Mm -hmm. the fact that there's a problem there. Fix it. You got it. And then this past weekend, uh, all-star weekend, um, obviously you did an amazing job on the bongos. Just want to point that out. Um, but the, uh, the 75 greatest NBA players of all time were honored. Um, and I asked you earlier, is there a top five group of players of faith that you maybe have seen that lead to be a better human being? And I don't mean just the faith in God, but maybe how their actions actually make, meet their beliefs or what you've seen in the locker room, off the TV, things that we don't see that you say, you know what? This person is a person of faith that can also help us lead. Wow. Um, yeah, that's a that's a hard question. Um, it's all improvised, right? That's what you say. Be you. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and, I, and I would hate to, and I would really hate to name somebody or say, well, this guy's really right. got great faith. I mean, I, I don't know enough guys that um, that tightly in, in the league to say, oh, yeah, this guy's. But, I mean, I think Steph's a guy of great faith. Mm. Um, I think Magic Johnson is, you know, Magic every year at the at the uh, at the beginning of our when we do the legends brunch, which is like my favorite part of all star weekend um, where they're all gathered and we, you know, some awards are given out and that kind of thing. But every time magic takes the podium and I'll introduce, Hey, this time all star, you know, this kind of finals MVP, et cetera. And then and he always says, good morning. God is good. Isn't he, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, and, and I love that. I love, and I just, uh, I think rather than pinpoint a bunch of guys in the league, they're, there are a, there are a bunch who are unashamed to point out that hey, God's got me here, you know. And they'll point it out in a post game interview. They'll point it out by by what they do in the community, um, by putting others first, by serving. Um, and so, rather than try to list guys and say oh, mm-hmm. these guys are really, I would just say um, the number is many, and it would be impossible for me to and knock it down to a top five beautiful beautiful and so a closing message perhaps a faith perhaps a blessing um as i said this children love sports adults love sports as i said earlier you are the distraction but the blessing that you give us through what you do through Shaq, through barkley through smith through everything that you do and first of all i have to say you do it through love but also this morning we have seen that you do it through faith and first of all, from our own community, from me personally, just a uh, comfort to you and your family. I know during this uh, difficult time of mourning and grief, knowing that we, the American people who watch you every single night, really stand with you as well. And so that's our blessing to you. And perhaps to uh, conclude, you want to give us a blessing uh, to continue on our faith journey going forward. Yeah, I mean, look, this is, um, I know we get we get so tied up with um the things that we have to do on a day in day out basis. And we get so, um, it can all be, you're just trying to stay afloat sometimes. And, and it's tough sometimes to, 
to look out at others rather than look in at, at what your agenda is. Um, and we're always in a hurry. One of my, one of my favorite, I mean, he's called a philosopher. He's called a theologian. He's, you know, is Dallas Willard, uh, the late Dallas Willard, who, um, there was a, a book I read by John Ortberg, um, who was a pastor at Menlo Park out in San Francisco area. And he was tight with, um, with Dallas Willard and wrote a book called Soul Keeping, mm. um, in which he talked, it's just talked about the value of the soul and, and to maintaining it and to, um, and the key, Dallas Willard said, the key to the, he said, that the biggest roadblock to the spiritual life is hurry. Um, and he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Yes. And when I read that, I was like, wow. Because you know what that does? When you're in a hurry, everything's about me. It's like, I need to get here to make my flight. I need to get down here for this meeting. I need to, I need to, I need to. And when you're not in a hurry, then you recognize if you're, if you're looking to your left and your right and you're unhurried, you're recognizing that person at work who just needs two seconds of your time because mm -hmm. they're struggling. You know, it's, and it's noticing the person who, who just looks like they need a word or needs just to be acknowledged, have their name said, you know, without, and not just a cursory, how you doing? See you, you know, yeah. but, but to be, be available. Um, and I, and I'll, and I'll tell us, a quick story before I split uh, or before you kick me out is, <laughs> Never. is that, is that um, we can all make people's lives better. Um, and I think that's what we, I think that's what we're here to do. I, and it doesn't need to be always some kind of this huge um, orchestrated effort of that's going to take, all this preparation and you know, I hope to get to that. It can just be a moment. And, and so what I, the story I'm going to tell you is I buy my wife flowers all the time and I'm not trying to guilt out any, you know, husbands out there or anything <laughs> like that and say, you know, this is what I do. So you got to do it. And, but, um, so when I'm at, when I'm at the grocery store, I'll pick up some flowers, bring them home for her. So, this happened probably three or four years ago where I was in and I bought two bouquets. I don't know what I had done that week where I felt compelled to get two bouquets for my <laughs> wife. I don't remember. We'll bring Cheryl on the next time. Yeah. So, so um, I go outside and I'm putting my groceries away and putting those flowers away. And I see um, an elderly woman in a handicapped spot who's putting a few groceries away. And I'm just, I'm thinking, and you, sometimes you just get this, uh, this little nudge and it's not somebody standing next to you, but it's somebody from above who's giving you a little nudge and say, Hey, Cheryl Ann doesn't need both of those, mm. but I think you could probably share one of those with this woman who's, you know, putting the stuff away in the handicap spot. So I walked over to her and I'm, and I said, look, I can't explain why I'm doing this. Uh, but I just feel like you should have these. And, and she looked me dead in the eye and said, I lost my husband a year ago today, and I haven't gotten flowers since. 
And, um, and it's at moments like that where you say, okay, this, don't tell me it's a coincidence. Mm-hmm. There are divine appointments. There's a reason that you had to be at Publix at this time when this woman was at Publix at this time. And so now every time I get my wife flowers, I buy an extra one. Wow. And so that's, and I go through the parking lot. Sometimes it's right there. Sometimes I got to make another trip. Somebody comes out, but there's always somebody. And I'll say, hey, look, you're the winner. I always buy one <laughs> for my wife. Here's an extra one. That's for you. And you would be amazed at how many times it has come at a time when that person needs that the most, where it's, wow, thanks for that. My husband's been out of work for the last seven months, you know, or I was just, you know, I just came in here today because I needed to get some flowers to bring them to somebody's house. I said, well, here you go. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's powerful. And I think when you're not in a hurry and when, and when you're able to, um, Try to put others first and not think about your agenda. Some amazing things can happen mm-hmm. that make the world a better place. And I'm not saying you got to spend 15 bucks on flowers all the time. Sometimes it's just hold the door open. Sometimes it's, can I help you with that? Yes. Sometimes it's just a word of encouragement. And I think if we all can do that, um, instead of saying, hey, this will be a great day to get on Twitter and eviscerate somebody, <laughs> that would be. I think that's a step in the right direction. So um, I, the last quote I'll give you. Please. I was, I was walking. I was, I was in Boston. I think I was either covering the Red Sox or the Celtics in the playoff series. But I had a day off, and, and our hotel was right across from one of those. They have great parks in Boston, you know, Boston Common and, and, and other places where lots of green grass and trees and statues and history and that kind of thing. And I'm walking through there. And I see this. This this one statue just caught my eye because it was kind of an older guy with a cane, you know, walking through like some a garden. And I'm looking at it and saying, who's this dude? You know, it's OK. It's Edward Everett Hale, you know, and it's it's you know, a patriot and a preacher of the gospel and a man of letters, it says. And but there's this quote um, and, it, and it, from him and it says, um, look up and not down. Look forward and not back. Look out and not in. Lend a hand. And I'm like, wow, that's awesome. And then I, then I find out, well, there's a there's a lend a hand society in Boston too that takes its name from this guy. Um, but I think it's just great daily advice, you know. For everything I need, I look up. Mm-hmm. You know, um, nothing I can do about the past. I look forward. Um, don't look in, look out, and uh, lend a hand. It sounds simple. Obviously, it's not as easy to do that, um, judging from the world we live in. So we're uh, that would be my encouragement to you and and everybody else out there as we um, you know as we go as we go from from day to day because you never realize. Just the power of one little moment that might mm-hmm. may seem insignificant may mm-hmm. change somebody's life entirely, and mm-hmm. and that's the that's the exciting part of it. That's the expectancy of it. That that uh, what's this day going to hold? What's five minutes from now going to hold? Um, in 
uh, when I stumble into some divine appointment. Yes. Um, that's the power of it. This is the day that God made. Let us Let rejoice, us rejoice in it. and be glad in it. Yes. And we are so happy and rejoicing right now because Ernie Johnson has spent just this hour with us here on Rabbi on the Sidelines. Emmy Award winner, author of this book. If you have not read this book, you must. Unscripted by Ernie Johnson Jr. A story of faith, a story of inspiration, really a story of how to live our life. So today, slow down. Take a moment to realize that this day that God has given us is a day that we must rejoice in it. Ernie, it is a pleasure to see you. We look forward to being in touch. God bless. Eris, it's been my pleasure. Love you too. Love you too.